Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number two on September 30th, 2016, coming to you out of the Central Library in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Today's main topic is the environment and our place in it. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and our DIY feature, which covers chicken-assisted composting this week. Today's topic is the environment, and obviously we can't cover all of the environment or climate change in a single podcast, nor would we want to. There are plenty of other research institutes and bodies out there covering climate change uh, very, very well, so we don't really need to go over that same ground. Uh, What our unique perspective is, looking at it in the long view of history, not just in the last industrialized couple of centuries, but, you know, since humans have uh, built large cities and and complex societies. What is clear today for us, the basis that we have to go from is that climate is changing, climate change is real, it's happening, it's no hoax by the Chinese, as a prominent politician has recently said. It's fueled by fossil fuels, it's anthropogenic, that means it's made by humans. The jury is back on this, it is a clear case. So we don't really need to rehash that. Um, That's not necessary. What we want to look at is how have other societies adapted to climate change? Other societies have dealt with climate change not on the scale that we're dealing with, but certainly the changing environment is a big deal for any society that lives on the planet. For example, the, the ancient Maya famously collapsed and drought was not the factor, but one of a, fa- a number of factors that led to that collapse. And we'll discuss the term collapse in another episode. It's a little bit of a misnomer. The ancient Egyptians fared better and worse depending on how the Nile flood came that year. Uh, too much water could spell disaster, and too little water, water would spell uh, disaster for the crops. Ancient Mesopotamia had to deal with drought. Um, it helped Uh, accumulate salt in their fields and led to a number of boom and bust cycles in the Middle East. The Inca had to deal with the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is basically the El Nino. Every 3 to 11 years, there's a upending of the normal climate uh, in that area, and so the Inca had to plan for this unpredictable weather pattern. So for us, climate is one factor. It's not the only factor to contribute to social upheaval. In the next uh, four podcasts, we're going to be discussing how a variety of factors are linked together. Uh, Right now, we're talking about the environment, but next time we'll be talking about agriculture and how the agricultural system of any given society and its environment interact. We'll also discuss social organization, trade, and how we respond to catastrophes, which has become encompassed under the word resilience. And we'll discuss how each one of these different segments or aspects of a society work together. We would love to look at climate change or drought or uh, any single factor as the straw that breaks the camel's back when we're looking at the collapse of ancient civilizations because we're good at dealing with a single finite problem. Oh, the temperature is getting warmer? Okay, that's, you know, if that was in isolation, we could deal with it. We could crank up the AC or do other things. But because the rising temperature has effects on a wide variety of other aspects of our society. It's not just that the temperature is going up, it's that it's affecting everything else. So, for example, the ozone hole was a finite problem that we dealt with by banning certain chemical substances that depleted the ozone layer. And hooray, uh, we've reduced the hole in the ozone. Great. However, 
when we're looking at climate change and our future, we have to deal with the fact that it's not just rising temperature. It changes everything that has to do with the environment, which, you know, our subsistence, our security, our ability to house and clothe ourselves, all these things are tied together. And so a changing environment must cause a change in these other systems. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks on this podcast. Now, here at the Low Tech Institute, we've derived our uh, philosophy or our outlook from a variety of people who have been thinking about the environment and how we as human beings should um, and can live with it. We look at people like Arnie Nass, who is a uh, Scandinavian philosopher uh, who made a differentiation between shallow and deep ecology, now um, or shallow and deep environmentalism. Shallow environmentalism is somebody who says, hey, don't pollute that lake. That's where my drinking water comes from. Whereas a deep environmentalist or a deep ecologist looks at that same lake and says, hey, there's a whole bunch of organisms that depend on that lake for their drinking water, so maybe we shouldn't be polluting it. We also follow Aldo Leopold, who was the father of American wildlife ecology. He developed a land ethic, which says, quote, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise, end quote. A lot of what we analyze and think about is through the lens of political ecology. Political ecology is a way that we can look at changes in the environment and track down the root social cause, not just look at the physical changes. For example, it was a cause celeb to decry rainforest destruction back in the 90s and still today, of course. But a political ecologist would look at that and say, okay, it's not just that they're cutting down the rainforest. Why are they cutting down the rainforest? Oh, more, uh, as more people become affluent in the world, there is a rising demand for beef, and therefore ranchers see a benefit or a profit to be made by cutting down the rainforest and herding cattle over it. Right? So it's looking at the social causes behind rainforest deforestation rather than just decrying the deforestation itself. From the ideas of these different disciplines and people and others, we've developed basically what we'd call three golden rules at the Institute, and we'll talk more about these in the final episode of this first series. But in short, number one, we're one of many species on this planet, and we have a large impact on the environment because of our ability to think, unlike any other creature that we know of so far on the planet. But because we have such a large impact, we also have a larger responsibility. And sometimes it feels like we're neglecting that responsibility. Number two, we should seek to mimic natural systems and live off the planet's surpluses. It is a little foolhardy for us to depend so heavily on non-renewable resources and continue to do so without really planning for what happens after these resources run out. And finally, number three, Simple is preferable to complex, and the complex is preferable to the complicated. What that basically means is we should use the simplest means we can to achieve whatever outcome we're looking for. Maybe this means riding your bike to the grocery store instead of driving. It also means having simplicity of things, having fewer well-made items of clothing, for example, rather than having a closet full of poorly made clothes that you go through very quickly. It's not possible to catalog the entire environmental problems that we face 
today here, but the basics are that the Earth has warmed about 0.6 degrees centigrade or 1.1 degrees Fahrenheit over the last century. Carbon dioxide levels have more than doubles from 180 to 405 parts per million this summer. You can see these changing greenhouse levels in recordings from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Earth Systems Research Laboratory. All this is available online. Uh, I recently saw a study that said we're probably never going to see levels below 400 parts per million in any of our lifetimes. Even more worrying is that very potent methane has quintupled from 350 to 1900 parts per billion in that same time, and methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. This is the highest level in 420,000 years, and it's all happened since industrialization. I mean, this is why it's really indisputable that climate change is happening, it's real, and it's caused by humans. We have this climate record. The IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, estimates another rise of 1 to 4 degrees centigrade, depending on what we do. That's 1.8 to 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. This means we'll see more coastal flooding, sea level rise, droughts, floods, variable temperatures and precipitation, and a rising sea temperature. All of these changes have effects on the plants and animals that we share this world with. And not only do we as human beings depend upon these plants and animals to survive, but these plants and animals also live here and have a right to do so. As these temperatures change and rise, the different zones of vegetation will move north, right? So deserts will move towards the poles. Temperate bands around the world will move northward. The only problem is the Arctic has nowhere to go. It can't move any farther north, and the Antarctic can't move any farther south, and so they will gradually disappear. Now you might say, hey, this is good for northern farmers. For example, in Canada, they're going to get more frost-free days every year. The problem is, as you go farther north, you get less and less landmass to grow food on, and because of the angle at which the sun hits the earth, you have less watts per square meter hitting northern latitudes and southern latitudes as you get closer and closer to the poles. The changes that we're already seeing are beyond what we could consider to be annual or even uh, long-term fluctuations in the earth's climate. Now, again, we're, we're not just looking at the nuts and bolts of actual climate change, we're looking at what are the social impacts of this, right? Going back to political ecology, we're looking at the social ramifications of these environmental changes. Now, it's pretty clear to see that the poorest and most marginal uh, societies among us are going to be the, the most affected by climate change, and they're going to be the first ones affected by climate change. The wealthy are usually better able to insulate themselves from changing conditions. Now, we do have proactive possibilities. We could use fossil fuels to build new infrastructure that doesn't use fossil fuels. I haven't seen anyone proposing to do this, but we could. We could improve warning systems. We could build in safer regions. We could improve crop reliability and healthcare infrastructure. We could do these things now while it's easy. We have easy access to an abundant fuel source. We're not going to have that in the future, and unless we make those changes now, we're going to have to scramble to try and do them later when everything else is more difficult. The political ecologist in me says, this isn't going to happen because the way that our system is built, 
is that those who have a strong hold on the reins of power are those that are funded by the current economy. That is the fossil fuel driven economy, the status quo economy, not the economy of the future. The future has no lobbyists. Right now, about 28% of our energy goes to transportation, 22% goes to industry, 10% goes to residential and commercial uses, and 40% goes to generate electricity. This is largely powered by petroleum. It's 36% of our total energy. Most of that goes to transportation. Natural gas provides 27% of our current power use. Coal, 18%. Renewable energy, 9%. And nuclear power, 8%. These are all facts from the United States. We could move away from fossil fuels, nuclear, dammed rivers, and large-scale wind to decentralized human-scale power generation. Human-scale, small-scale power generation are simple, and they use the planet's surpluses. We're not, no one's ever talked about peak wind or peak solar. We're never going to run out of wind or solar until the sun blows up, which is why some politicians are not worried about climate change. The sun's going to blow up. Well, yeah, but that's way too far in the future for us to worry about today. Decentralized power is more resilient. Uh, you have small outages, localized neighborhood outages, rather than region-wide outages when a branch falls over a, a power cable and shuts down the entire northeast corridor for some reason, like what happened uh, a decade ago. Human-scale power is DIY. It's simpler technology. You can fix it yourself, or a friend can help you fix it. It's not dependent on large, centralized bureaucracies that are slow to move and slow to fix problems. This leads to moving towards less energy-intensive construction and living, uh, which would ease the need for producing so much electricity. We need to take responsibility for our emissions. Part of recognizing that we're a species on the planet and not these species on the planet is recognizing also that first-worlders are generally responsible for a lot of the emissions, even if they don't happen in your country. For example, Every late-night comic has made fun of China, uh, especially around the Beijing Olympics and other, other times when China's been in the news, for having terrible air quality. The reason China has terrible air quality is that they use coal-fired plants to produce power. And what are they doing with that power? Well, they're running factories to make stuff to export to the United States. So we've basically exported our production to China and also our air pollution. Unfortunately, air travels the globe, so China's deregulated coal use comes back to haunt us. Uh, Japan, for example, is very heavily forested. Japan is a very wood-friendly culture, but instead of harvesting from their own forests, they import wood from abroad, usually from countries that have massive deforestation, to provide wood to other countries that can afford it. They've exported their deforestation. Many times the environmental degradation that we as first worlders decry in poor countries is due to them having to take on the degradation that would be happening in our countries, except that we can afford to displace it and have it happen elsewhere. One place that we can make a lot of savings is in large hierarchical organizations because companies and others are able to root out inefficiencies and clamp down on waste they could easily do that on their energy budgets. Furthermore, large corporations and large companies often waste large amounts of energy because they're running ACs so high in the summer that you have to wear a sweater inside, and in the winter, things are heated so hot that you have to open the window to let excess heat out. Things like that, running lights all night, running computers excessively, right? These are all places where 
Large organizations could very easily, from a top-down perspective, put in changes that would reap immediate benefits. But that doesn't take us as individuals off the hook. We, in industrialized countries, we use way more energy per capita than the global average. That's bad news in terms of overall energy use, but it's good news in terms of what we can cut back on because we have so much room to grow on uh, energy conservation. It's hard, though, when our culture is so geared towards heavy consumption, high energy consumption, right? It's so much easier just to get in your car and drive somewhere. It's so much easier to fly somewhere. It's, it's just built into our society. It's in our bones. It feels like that high energy is just easier. So it takes a lot of work and it takes a while until you start to feel more comfortable in less energy intensive expenditures, right? So carpooling, public transit, or even biking to work. Maybe considering the distance to your work when you buy a new house. Don't just assume that you're going to have to commute for a long time. All sorts of little things that you can do on a day-to-day basis. We don't have time to get into all of them, of course. They're pretty well known. It's just that they're hard to implement. So it helps if you do it with a buddy or do it with others, right? But these are things that we have to be thinking about as we come to the end of the abundant fuel age and start to have to live within our resources for the first time in 200 years. Okay, for this week's DIY feature, we're going to be looking at chicken composting. And that's not composting dead chickens, although actually you you can. But I'm talking about using chickens as sanitation workers. Basically, the chickens speed up your decomposition and give you clean, ready-to-use compost much quicker than a traditional, simple compost pile. So, obviously, this assumes that you have chickens, which not everyone does, and I understand that. But if you do have chickens and you're not doing chicken composting, you're really missing out. At first, it seems a little strange to let your chickens just dig through and root through your your scraps, but it really has major benefits. Number one, you can save on chicken feed. Uh, There are some larger scale people who do this who don't even use chicken feed. They are able to get enough scraps and compost from their neighboring restaurants and that they can just let their chickens eat that. And I don't do that. I have food available for them as well, but I certainly let them dig through the compost. Uh, It stimulates the chickens. They get to hunt and peck and dig through these giant piles of mostly dirt and uh, broken down compost. They look for worms, they look for grubs and little bits of still edible food. And it cycles your compost so much faster. Usually I have to wait a year because I do cold composting. I, I never get the temperature high enough to do hot. And so I have to let it sit for a long amount of time. But since I've been doing chicken composting, I mean, they've turned this year's compost over and it'll be ready to go on the garden this fall. The downsides are, well, it can be a little messy if you don't have a properly designed pen to contain the compost. Chickens will make a mess of anything that you let them. Again, it's only possible if you own chickens already. I hope to put out a a bulletin uh, soon on basic chicken ownership. They're much easier to care for than a dog or any other animal I've ever had, other than goldfish, I suppose. And they lay eggs, so it's great to have friends when you're gone come and watch the chickens because at least they get paid in eggs. The other downside is not all foods can go into the chicken composter, just like you don't give certain scraps to your, your dog or you don't give certain scraps to your chickens as it is. The more fastidious among us would keep things like citrus, coffee grounds, chocolate, avocados, green potatoes, dry legumes, rotten food or junk food out of their chicken compost. And, you know, that's completely acceptable. Although if you go online, you'll see great debates whether or not each one of those foods is allowable. 
you know, for example, we put coffee grounds and citrus in there and the, the girls just completely ignore them. So it doesn't really, it's gonna be up to personal preference. If you wanna see a complete write-up of this, check out our uh, blog where you can find our DIY uh, compost post from Thursday, where it gives you more complete instructions and links on chicken composting. We had a great suggestion last week from a listener to talk more about our personal experience with the different DIY projects and leave the instructions to the blog, which is a better format usually for things like recipes and things like that. You don't need me saying four teaspoons of yeast, etc., etc. Uh, it's easier to see that written down, and I can talk about my experience with this and. You know, we did it this year for the first time, and it is, I'm never going back. Chickens are always going to have access to our compost because it's just so much quicker. You can see a video of our first attempt at a chicken composter, which we made a pen out of bricks in front of our normal composting pile. It wasn't high enough, and they made a mess kicking all the compost out, so we put up walls that you see now in the photo of the of the post where it's actually um, two by ten boards that keep the compost penned in and yeah um, I know the chickens like it because each morning I open up their pen and let them run out in the yard to eat clover and grass and they really really like that but on the mornings when I turn over the compost and open the gate they'd prefer to go into the compost rather than leave their run and eat grass which they love so I know that they like the compost even more than they like grass and things like that so I think it's all the grubs and worms and things that are in the compost that they get to eat. And for those of you worried that you're going to decimate your worm population, well, probably not because they've been eating through the compost all summer and we have tons of worms still in there, so I'm not too worried about it. Now let's move on to our news roundup. Uh, let's take a look at this weekend, low-tech news. Pretty quiet this week. Um, there's a story from NPR about the community apiaries that are springing up which basically allows city dwellers to keep bees, and it also helps new beekeepers find mentors, which is really important not just for beekeepers, but for really any of these new skills you're trying to take on. It's important to find a community of mentors who can help you with problems, because if you have something going wrong in your garden or with your bees or with your chickens or what have you, you're probably not the first one. And although we do have, you know, the internet community where you can look up these questions, it's nice to have somebody there who can actually look at what's going on and give you a hand. Walden Labs reports on chaga, which is a mushroom that grows on birch trees. It was eaten in Scandinavia up until recent times, and it's kind of making a comeback, so they have a whole story on that. Um, I found Walden Labs this week, and I really like them, and I recommend their website to you. Also this week, we want to mark the passing of Bill Mollison, who is known as the father of permaculture, which is a mainstay of the long-term sustainability discussions. Basically, permaculture is having a permanently built infrastructure of plants that are beneficial in some way and that you maintain this ecological system permanently. So it depends on a lot of perennials and fruit trees and things like that. It's going to be something that's very important to us at the Institute. When we have a permanent location, we plan to use permaculture to change our landscape into a beneficial one uh, from our point of view. We're going to be working towards something we call primary forest efficiency, which is a term out of archaeology that we'll have to do a podcast on in the future. So those are the, some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. You can see the links to those stories and others on our website, which is Low Tech Institute, which is all one word, .wordpress.com. You can also follow the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we've been doing around the Institute. This week, we wrote a proposal for next year's bee research. We're asking for uh, about $1,000 to build and manage nine hives 
built to be like ancient Egyptian hives. These are basically clay tubes that the bees will live in. We're going to make a, a variety of different types of tubes to see how, they dif- how the different attempts at reconstructing these hives work. We'll ask all kinds of questions about the positive and negative aspects of this type of bee management. We hope to identify at least a few useful practices or observations that we can adapt then to modern use. We also added some more fish to our aquaponics system. This is a proof-of-concept aquaponics system with a 50-gallon tank and a 4-cubic-foot grow bed. In short, aquaponics works by converting the ammonium that comes from the fish feces being turned into nitrites by one set of bacteria, and then another set of bacteria turns those nitrites into nitrates, and the plants then absorb the nitrates out of the system. It is a continuous pump system that moves water through the plant roots in this grow bed, and then that water gets dumped back into the tank all clean through basically a biofilter. Our system has finally stabilized enough where we can add more fish, bringing us up to 10 total. We're going to do a complete write-up on this research and probably a blog post before too long so you can actually see pictures of it. Also, coming up this next week on the blog is going to be a look back at this year and what went wrong. Failure is a part of any experimentation, so we want to share what didn't go right for us this year. Some of the pitfalls that we've encountered, so maybe you won't have to. We'll call these things unanticipated learning experiences. We're going to talk about growing tomatoes in a greenhouse, um, nearly flooding the house with our aquaponic systems, trials and tribulations with growing mushrooms, and a couple other things where we had less than hoped-for results, but still we learned a lot about it. So um, hopefully our loss will be your gain in in the knowledge department. Well, that's it for the Low Tech Podcast which is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the St. Louis Public Library's Creative Experience Recording Room. Thank you very much. Our intro music was Fortsetzung Folkt off the album 8-Bit Love Machine by Gumble. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to share and use this podcast and that song as long as you give us credit. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me at soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can also find out more information on the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, .wordpress.com. You can also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.